Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. I am Dr. Renee Frazier. I'm a psychologist who runs an advertising and marketing firm called Frazier Communications. We're $30 million strong and 25 people doing work for the Department of Health here in Los Angeles, the Toyota, Lexus, a number of health insurance and health services companies, as well as work in the environment with the Department of Water and Power and the Clean Power Alliance, which is one of the largest suppliers of solar and wind. But enough about my company. I want to talk today about the show, Why Women. We focus on this show, women and success stories, so that other women can learn and be inspired by those that have uh, come before them. And we learn about the... uh, the difficulties we all face, the challenges, but we also like to talk about opportunities for success. So today's show, we're going to be talking about a woman who has started a wonderful foundation called the Every Child Foundation, which is a giving circle. I've spoken about these before on the show. Uh, so we'll be talking about philanthropy, about her travel, her career, and her focus area. But then they, I want to secondarily talk about important work that the Every Child Foundation has funded with uh, Loyola School of Law. Some very important work being done in the juvenile, and particularly in the area of foster kids. I think many of us know that our foster system is troubled, but they have clearly come with way with ways to modify and change it. So I hope we all learn today more about things we could do philanthropically in the community and get motivated by my next guest. So I'm going to introduce the first guest, Jacqueline Castor. Jacqueline is uh, the founder of the Every Child Foundation, and she has a remarkable background. But before I get into her background, Jacqueline, please say hello to the audience. Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for for stepping in. You've had a a track record in the juvenile justice area. Could you give us some of your background? um, Tell us about yourself, why you started the foundation, and and even before that, how you came to your concern and understanding of issues related to juvenile justice. Okay. Well, um, I grew up in Kansas City with a family that was very focused on giving back. My father was a physician. He was a gastroenterologist. And my mother was very involved with philanthropy and volunteering in the community and and nationally as well. My grandparents were were also very um, involved in their communities and volunteering and philanthropy. So I I grew up with kind of that, that culture of giving back. And I became a lawyer and an urban planner. I I have a law degree from Boston University and a master's in city and regional planning from the Kennedy School at Harvard. And I was very involved with my career with improving metropolitan areas to become more livable in the early and mid 80s after the urban blight of the 60s and 70s. And along the way, I was also always involved in charity boards and trying to give back. And that was kind of what led me to start the Every Child Foundation because all the charity involvement I always had was very, very focused on gala, gala, the gala production. (laughs) The big events, the luncheon or the evening event, yes, as a fundraiser. Auctions and, Mm -hmm. you know, and these, these functions were expensive and 
these boards typically had a lot of talented people that were highly educated with great professional backgrounds and, you know, a lot of smart people. But all we were asked to do was pretty much try to drum up, you know, ticket sales and honorees and auction items for this, you know, these events that in the long run oftentimes didn't net much money. And in a couple instances, I witnessed charity galas that actually were negative. Mm. Um came up negative. So that was very frustrating. And so uh, one day I was literally in the bathtub and I must have been staring at the drain (laughs) 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 because I was just thinking about all the checks that I'd written and all the things that I dragged my husband to over the years. And we're, you know, everybody would have rather just seen the money go to the good cause instead of, you know, this whole, this, you know, this whole production. And um, I just came up with this idea in my head. I'd never heard of a giving circle. And I thought, what if I got a couple hundred women together in L.A. and every woman gave $5,000? We could have a million dollars every year. And we could pick one different project each year that we could fund that would fill a critical unmet need in the community. And I had two children at the time two young children. And so my focus was on, on children. And I'd been involved in a lot of children's charities and also a number of things that dealt with the senior population. But I was very focused on children at the time. And anyway, I just came up with this idea. I had not heard of a giving circle before, but um, the concept has you know, been around forever, at, you know, past passing the hat around the the basement in the, in, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um you know, that, that, that's basically a giving circle. So I thought, what if, you know, every year we could fund a different project that filled a critical unmet need of children in the community. And we would try to fund something that was new and innovative. I like the idea. Yeah. New and and innovative. That's great. Let me, let me, I've, I've had, I've been in another giving circle called the LA giving circle and uh, I've had uh, Helen McKinnon on who started that and a couple of the charities, different focus. They, uh, they, they, women and girls, and then they, they fund four or five projects a year rather than one. I like the fact that you have really been able to fund one with a very meaningful impact. Uh, may, may I ask how much money you raise typically in a year or the range? A million. Oh, that's well, great. Well, actually, now it's a million one because uh, after 20 years, we had never raised our dues. And, you know, we do have some expenses running the organization. We have to pay for an audit and tax return, and we have to pay for some uh, contract clerical work, um, uh, directors and officers insurance and so on. So right. uh, costs, costs went up over the years. And we typically narrow down the candidates to two finalists and the, the one that wins that gets the most votes gets the million dollars. And typically the runner up didn't get anything directly from the organization, but our members would pull together extra dollars to, to make some sort of generous grant for the runner up. Sure. And we decided uh, since we were going to raise the dues to uh, we raised them to six thousand a few years ago that we would give a hundred thousand dollars to the runner up. Great. And so that, that dues increase covers that as well. So we we typically now give one point one million. And since we were formed twenty four years ago, including this year's grant that we're, we'll be giving, we will have given away 
um, close to $23 million in, in direct grants. That's amazing. Congratulations, uh, Jacqueline. That's really remarkable and uh, important work. I can see your frustration. I, I sit on several boards, and I know what you mean about those luncheons and galas, and then you, you wonder and, if— And well, let me just yeah. back up. I mean, they can be great if they're done smart, done, you know, they're underwritten, you, mm-hmm. they're done efficiently, and they can be they can be a great thing. Just so often they aren't, so— Right, right. Well, this is another alternative. And what I think is good about the donor circle is you roll up your sleeves, you really learn about an issue. Now, I wanted to ask about your background, restorative justice. Uh, uh, You've been advocating for some uh, programs in the juvenile justice system. Is that right? And could you share that with us? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, but I was a real estate lawyer and no background at all in criminal law. And one day, one of our Every John members, uh, Carol Biondi, who's who's been very active in the community in children's issues, she's been a children's uh, commissioner in the county. And she she took me and Karen Bass, who was in the the state legislature at the time, to Camp David Gonzalez to take a tour. And we were, and that was one of the best juvenile detention camps in the county. Mm -hmm. Kids are housed when they're incarcerated. And we were horrified by what we saw. It was this institutional setting where it was dehumanizing and there was no stimulation for the kids. There's nothing restorative about it or rehabilitative. Anyway, that uh, kind of lit a fire under me and that was kind of how my interest began. And then uh, at the time there was a a chief of the uh, county probation department, which runs the facilities that was, uh, doing a few things that we weren't in favor of. And so I started sending letters to the board of supervisors and <laughs> that was kind of how I, I got into all this and <laughs> began learning. And then one thing led to another and yeah. Well, you got, it's a, a remarkable that you've been able to make change happen. I, I think many of my listeners don't realize, but letters do count, right? And if you stay persistent with an issue, you can get people to reconsider. And, of course, you had Karen Bass on your side, too, it sounds like, who, who is now our mayor. Of course, she went back to uh, Congress. But did she stay involved with you as you did some of this work? or? Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's been she's uh, when she was in Congress, she was advocating for issues for kids all along. She's always been very involved with the kids in the foster care system in particular. And as you'll hear later from Sean, those kids typically uh, there's a group called crossover kids because a lot of kids in the foster care system end up crossing over into the delinquency system. And so they're duly involved kids in two different uh, institutions and and um, so they often you know are the same kids. I get it. I get it. Well, that that turns us to a program that was funded by the Every Child Foundation. It was, I believe, a 2017 grant for the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy at Loyola Law School. Is that right? That was 2017. Right. And uh, at the uh, uh, chief of the of uh, the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy at Loyola Law School is Sean Kennedy. And we have him on the show with us. Sean, can you say hello to the audience? 
Uh, hello, Renee. It's a great honor to be here. Well, thank you for taking the time. I want to learn much more about this. I'm going to ask everybody to hold. We're going to listen to news and traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women on KABC 790. Stay tuned for more. What does that mean, crossover youth? And what can we do to help those foster kids so they don't cross into the juvenile justice system? Stay tuned. Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. We're talking about the juvenile justice system as well as philanthropy. We have on our show Jacqueline Castor, who's head and founder of the Every Child Foundation. And we're just bringing on a gentleman named Sean Kennedy, who runs the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy at Loyola Law School. Welcome back to both of you. Uh, Let me start by asking about this school-to-prison pipeline. I I read about that as I read your material. Sean, can you speak about that? Sure. The school-to-prison pipeline uh, refers to a phenomenon where uh, kids who go to uh, schools that uh, don't treat them like an individual, that are heavily policed, that don't address their uh, educational needs, uh, often end up being a pipeline for youth who then uh, get into trouble out in the neighborhood, sometimes become gang involved. And it's really almost like a uh, pipeline from a overwhelmed school to incarceration. I hear you. I hear you, Sean. And I understand. I mean, in the uh, Center for Juvenile Law, you obviously have been looking at uh, young people in the juvenile justice system. And uh, I think many of us have known people who just you feel like the circumstances really created a a terrible situation for their uh, um, for their ability to achieve anything. I'm in my work uh, as an advertising and marketing person, we only focus on doing well by doing good. And one of the issues we took on for First Five California was ACEs. So we know that these childhood experiences that are um, uh, grievous, and I'm, I'm missing the first A, what it stands for, but it'll come to me in a moment. It has Adverse. to do with, say it again. Adverse. Adverse, exactly. Thank you, Jacqueline. Adverse childhood experiences really predicts poor health, poor outcomes, and of course, serious problems with the uh, with the justice system. So, um, I'm 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 I think many of us are aware, but wonder what we can do about that. Um, I, we're going to talk about crossover youth because we uh, Jacqueline brought that up, but perhaps we should take just a step back. And Sean, would you tell us what the grant entailed? Or if you'd like to step in on that, uh, Jacqueline, that's fine as well. I think we'd like to understand the beginning and now, of course, the progress that you've made. Well, Sean, take it away. Sure, Jacqueline. Um, so the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy at Loyola Law School trains law students to represent middle school and high school students who are being uh, prosecuted in the juvenile justice system. And we use a holistic method, meaning we don't just do court appearances, but we try to address the root causes of juvenile delinquency and gang involvement. So we have uh, social workers on staff, we have an educational advocacy team, and then of course, we have the professors and the students who are actually representing 
those young people pro bono in court. And um, the project that every child sponsored took on the toughest of the tough challenges, and that is crossover youth. Mm. And as Jacqueline referred, uh, crossover youth are kids who have been taken from their family home, usually because of abuse or neglect. And uh, often those young people will act out in response to all the untreated trauma and stress mm-hmm. of entering the child welfare system. And uh, so they end up crossing over into the juvenile delinquency system as well. And, uh, and they're prosecuted instead of treated for all of the trauma and stress going on in their lives. And uh, we think that's wrong. And this project tried to focus on that particular phenomenon. Well, I, I love the, uh, the idea behind the program. I think training young people makes so much sense, young attorneys, so they can carry this out. When they, uh, they work with the young people, do they, does the program involve any other extended uh, co- uh, connection? Because as you mentioned, you have social workers and people who advocate for them. I mean, I'm sad to say, I'm not sure, you know, uh, a one-time, one-time experience might be sufficient, but I may be wrong. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, uh, the law students enter uh, the center in a year-long program, and many stay another year, and they really um, serve as the lawyers. I mean, they're halfway through law school, and they serve as the lawyers for the uh, crossover youth, and they work with social workers and um, community-based gang experts and family, whether foster or biological and they get involved in um, the school system as well. Wow. So it's a really comprehensive approach to representation that uh, really is the way it ought to be done, but often is not done because of government restrictions on what public defender offices can do. Yes, I, I've, I've shared with the audience before, my daughter has been a public defender and my son-in-law, they're both attorneys. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of frustration on the, uh, the the way in which they can help people and the circumstances. So in, in this, train, this program where the students are engaged for two years, uh, I, I imagine there's a lot of satisfaction with helping kids. Can you give us any examples of what, what's been accomplished in the program? You know, anecdotally, I'm sure you have data as well, but I'm I'm trying to get to the emotional part of this, if I could. Sure. This is a transformative program, usually for the law students and the young people that they represent. And so uh, we put enormous emphasis on getting kids through school and graduating from high school. Mm. Our belief is that if we can just get our young clients through school, their chances of succeeding go way up and their chances of recidivating or committing more crimes and getting adult sentences go way down. And so over and over again, I see law students who are thrilled when they tell me about this time of year that they are attending a client's graduation. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. Because for some uh, kids, particularly crossover youth, it is so hard to get through school. The child welfare system often moves those kids around for its own needs, and so we've had we've had um, 
uh, clients who have gone to, you know, eight, 10 different schools in a short period of time. And there's just no way that a high schooler is going to do well under those circumstances. Right. Which is is why we put so much emphasis on um, educational advocacy in tandem with representation in the juvenile delinquency court. I think that's can, uh, I, can I just jump in here for a second? Please. Um, I think one of the, one of the examples that they presented to us from Loyola when they were applying for the grant was the the situation where college and there's prerequisites that you need to fulfill if you're going to apply to college and a lot of the kids that are in the foster care system because of all the the confusion with all their moving around and whatnot they aren't given, they don't have a consistent advisor. Uh, they're, they're, you know, at all these different institutions. And so they miss out on, on the fact that they are, they need these, you know, these, these required classes. And so one of the things that the Loyola program does is it, it makes sure that the kids know what they're in, you know, that they're, edu- they're entitled to an education plan mm-hmm. and that they are, are, and make them aware of things like the prerequisites that they need. Great. That a lot That's... of kids are just not even aware of. Sure. And that, you know, that puts a whole kibosh on their future in many ways if they, they haven't, they haven't been properly advised in that, in that area it makes sense they, they start to you know with, uh, with step backwards as opposed to forward you know I at my firm we, we sometimes create content with people we did it with teenagers uh, to alert them to the dangers of cannabis before you uh, it's legal at 21 and there was a young woman in our group who came from a really troubled family she was a foster youth and when we asked her to describe a commercial she said well I go home with my homework and I'm in the house and my cousins and everyone is smoking weed or passed out on the couch and they say come sit with us she said so in one version i sit with them and then i go to school the next day and i fail the test she said but the other half of the commercial they are sitting there and i say no way and i go to my room and i study and i go home and i go back to school and i score you know an a or a b on the test and she she really wanted uh a receptive family, uh, you know, someone who cared about her, because in my experience, that's also what counts, right? And these advocates, they also spend time, they see the virtue in the child, the young person. I probably shouldn't call them a child, but they see the value and what they can be. And it really is important that someone see that in you and hold on to that so that you feel like it's worth it for me to finish school. Somebody sees my potential. And I'm, is that a part of the program, Sean? Do you, the, I'm sure the lawyers want to give that kind of attention to the young people that they're handling. Absolutely, uh, Renee. I feel like uh, having um, young law students often who are in their early 20s mm-hmm. representing at-risk youth or uh, crossover youth is uh, can be uh, such a game changer because um, that connection that you're talking about is, is there. And when they see the law students who really just pour their hearts into the representation in a way that wouldn't occur in ordinary legal representation. Right, right. Uh, and visit them constantly if they're in custody and check in with them and help them uh, uh, with their school issues. And also don't judge them 
yes. for being gang adjacent or right. gang involved, right. understanding that often that is seeking connection when you have no connection in the very sterile and clinical child welfare system. Absolutely, Sean. You know, we're running out of time in this episode, but I get you exactly. The connection is what's important. I want to talk more about the 1,500 child advocates that you've trained in the next episode. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women, and we'll be coming right back after the news to learn more about crossover youth. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. This is Renee Frazier. We're talking with uh, Jacqueline Castor of the Every Child Foundation and Sean Kennedy from the Loyola Law School, uh, specifically the Center for Juvenile Law and Policy. So we were talking about the connection the young lawyers make, uh, and Sean was making the point that uh, they get so highly engaged. Uh, a subtle point that he made is, you know, when you're a public defender and you're representing many cases, you might have 40 25, 40 cases, but I, I'm sensing, Sean, in this case, uh, they have very few, so they can spend a lot of time with these young people. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the students do one or two cases uh, at a time, so they can really focus on uh, developing a relationship with their young client and trying to address the root causes of their problems. It's great. You know, the other thing I will say, and I'm, I'm going to uh, allude to this and ask you to jump in on this, Jacqueline, I think <clears throat> one of the things that's important for young people and in this training is to understand the complexity of the situations that young people or all of us come from. We uh, we do some work across the country educating sales associates about the emerging new audiences and how you have to find a common ground with people, not just the transaction, but build a relationship. And I think it's true in life. We show an iceberg and we make the point that the top of the iceberg is all we really see. We don't see the family history. We don't necessarily see all the situations they've experienced. And in the case of youth, especially crossover youth, there can be some very difficult situation so the lawyers get a chance to really be more empathetic and more understanding and I will just say to you Jacqueline I suspect that comes to you naturally but it's also in the philanthropic work you do you've probably gotten very close to several issues to better understand and and like we just said a moment ago no judgment is that right oh yes I mean I was involved with helping to bring um Diversion programs to Los Angeles County uh, and diversion programs are when a, a youth gets arrested. Well, it can be any age, but I was involved with youth diversion. Uh, a youth is arrested and then they they have a, an opportunity to have the charges dismissed if they participate in a therapeutic program whereby, you know, they get counseling and tutoring and whatnot and get a fresh start. And one of the things that uh, Chief Beck, who, who was in office at the time we began this program, said to me was, there's no such thing as a bad kid. There's mm -hmm. kids that come from bad circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the case. I mean, it's, it's a rare kid that's really, uh, you know, uh, uh, highly dangerous that needs to be really removed from, from you know, the major population. Uh, for an extended period of time that most of the kids just have had very unfortunate circumstances and they're the youth 
brain is very malleable. Uh, science uh, has shown us that, that the brain isn't really fully formed till probably like age 28. So there's opportunity for a young person to really redeem themselves and and change and and grow and yes yes i think you're absolutely right we've uh, you know the neuroscience is amazing with the plasticity in the brain but in particular for young people the executive function and thinking uh further out in terms of implications particularly young men unfortunately it's 25 to 28 as you said so uh being able to be with a a, a loving adult who see a caring person who sees in them and can articulate those things that's a great thing to be able to help them shape their future and then and I imagine in the case of the young attorneys, it also has an impact. Sean, have you done any follow-up work with the law students as they graduate to see if they've chosen juvenile law or criminal law? Yes, uh, uh, we're a major feeder to uh, uh, public defender offices and juvenile justice advocacy organizations throughout the whole state and really now moving you know, throughout the country. And the graduates of this program, having experienced the Every Child model, they, as rookie public defenders, uh, and my, my daughter is one of them, <laughs> they are now asking for, uh, uh, you know, social workers on cases. They're asking for mentors to talk about gang transition and exit. And so the young people that experience this type of representation go out into the world and then they ask the uh, leadership of public defender offices, whether they can have these resources. And so we feel like that's another part of the impact that every child has made because our goal was always to bring this model to a wider audience. I love that idea and have a systemic change. So their perspective of the lawyers has changed the system and the way they advocate throughout their career. That must warm your heart, Jacqueline. I think Every Child Foundation, it's probably, is that a consideration when you decide what you're going to fund, the long-term impact? Absolutely. I mean, we, we try to seek out projects that are innovative new prototypes or expansions of an innovative new prototype that can be replicated. And so that our grant will dollars are leveraged and will have a wider impact. And many, many of our projects have have seen that that happen. And one of the integral parts of this grant to Loyola was we funded a seminar a symposium that was that invited uh, representatives from law schools all across the country and and a lot from California to learn about how to replicate this program. And I, I want to just get back to one thing you were just talking about previously, and that is the the mentor connection for for these youth. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things I've learned through my years with Every Child is that the most important thing for any youth anywhere is to have one consistent caring adult in their life yes. that will make the the biggest difference in in their their outcomes their future their happiness their their success everything that is critical and so this is why this program is is very important because it it does provide some element of that and it's just 
what Loyola has achieved is just remarkable. You're right. You're right, Jacqueline. And I, I want to I want to cover that in a moment. But I want to stop for a moment to make sure the listeners heard that. I'm familiar with that research as well. This is for every single child, not just troubled youth that are this is are growing up in these difficult circumstances. But every child needs at least one consistent, caring adult, and that could be an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor. Uh, and it's time that we all reached out to children in our lives and became that consistent, caring adult uh, when you have that opportunity. So it's important for people to know that. But to go back then to the uh, the impact, tell me more about this uh, uh, symposium. And, and Sean, what, what what was the result of that? Did you, did, you, did you spread the word and do you think other communities are adopting this? Yes. Uh, one of the strengths of being a free law clinic on a law school campus is that we can institute practice-based policy training. And so uh, after spending three years representing 300 of the most difficult situations in juvenile court, that being crossover youth, we learned a ton. And part of the agreement with every child is that we would take what we learned and bring it to a national audience. And so in the height of the pandemic, we had a two-day symposium for other law schools, other public defender offices, uh, dependency offices, people involved in community-based gang outreach, all attended. And we talked about the fact that when you represent crossover youth, you can't hide in your silos. The criminal lawyers need to talk to the educational advocates. Those criminal lawyers need to go to the IEP, go into the schools and figure out what is the problem. And the dependency lawyers, the lawyers working in the child welfare system and the criminal lawyers working in the delinquency system, they need to work together in a truly integrated fashion to do what is best for that young person. And that was our number one takeaway, that you can't hide in your silos. You can't hide behind the attorney-client privilege. You all have to find a way to work together to achieve the goal. I I think that's wonderful to spread it and smart for the Every Child Foundation to build that into the granting, to spread the information, as you said, Jacqueline, so that you knew it had legs, so to speak. Um, I wanted to ask about implications for reform Uh, because you both are very uh, deep in the system and you see what the issues are. And unfortunately, nothing's getting better. It's only getting worse. Uh, So I I want us to pause for a moment. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. I think it's going to be important to hear what you would recommend and what you would advocate for. And if any reforms have already occurred in the system in L.A. County, I think we'd like to believe that we lead the way here. And with this kind of innovative work, We really can change systems. So I'd like the listeners to hold on and listen as we hear about systemic change and what can be done to help these crossover youth who are moving from foster care to delinquency. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women, here on KABC. You'll hear traffic and news, and we'll be right back with Sean Kennedy from the Loyola Law School and Jacqueline Castor from the Every Child Foundation. Stay tuned. This 
This is the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. And we're talking today about a very difficult subject, but some groundbreaking work that's been done at Loyola Law School, but with the help of the Every Child Foundation, help over 300 uh, young people who were crossover youth from the foster system going into delinquency. Sean, I was going to ask you, as the leader of the center, uh, what kind of results did you have as a result of this? We've talked about the soft side, which is very important and the sharing of the information at the symposium with other public defender offices and with uh, uh, all the law schools etc but what about the 300 youth that you have you were able to help with their their legal situations any results you can report yes well um, we had a 90 percent positive outcome rate in the short term and we're studying the long term which is going to be the most uh, important, but when I say positive outcomes, I'm mostly referring to graduation from high school or uh, uh, um, being given special ed uh, eligibility that previously was not recognized mm-hmm. or getting someone actually enrolled in school who wasn't attending school at all. And so on the educational side, we had a lot of success mostly because there was no parent looking out for these kids' education and having uh, educational advocacy in addition to traditional defense made all the difference. Oh, so an educational advocate could help them in the school system, get them the resources they need if they had a special need or a learning uh, deficiency that could be helped with the system. I see. So an advocate for them, because a parent isn't doing that for them, right? And I don't. I hope people know that when you're a foster child, unfortunately, you can go from household to household to household, and the people that are the foster parents are not always your best advocate, right? Exactly, and it's no surprise that when you do really poorly in school because you have unaddressed educational uh, uh, needs that then you don't like school. You stop going to school and then you become gang involved. Whereas if you can figure out the educational need through an IEP or a due process hearing and have it addressed, uh, those youth start to uh, succeed in school. And like every other kid, uh, that is a very uh, important developmental milestone for them. So there's just so many people who can do well in school if we addressed their unique educational needs. Right, right. Yeah. And as, as Jacqueline said at the outset, these are really at heart very good kids who've had terrible circumstances. And if they're not getting the help they deserve, uh, you're doing that for them. Jacqueline, let me let me uh, ask you to talk about the systemic implications. And I know Sean will have some thoughts on this as well. But you work very hard to get uh uh, the the system changed so that we could have diversion programs, like you told us earlier. Ch- youth who are in the legal system could def- not get charged, as I understand it, if they attended therapy, education classes, etc. Do you see other things that need to be done that have come to light as a result of of the uh, of the program at Loyola? Well, I mean. There's so much dysfunction in our juvenile incarceration system in L.A. County that, I I mean, a lot of it has come to light through many, many different uh, avenues. Mm -hmm. And certainly 
through the Loyola pro program as well. I mean, we see what happens when these kids do get locked up in our, our county system. And if any of your listeners have been following the, the stories in the LA Times with what's going on, and you know, yes. they, 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 it's just a, a nightmare. They, the staff isn't showing up for work. There's violence. It's uh, kids aren't getting rehabilitated. There's no education. The the education is abysmal, and the system is is really just totally dysfunctional. When a kid does lock, get locked up in our, our county, and the recidivism rates are are sky high, and on top of it, the costs are astronomical because the that very few of the staff ever get fired. So they have a staff to, to uh, youth ratio that's ridiculous. And so there's, I've heard estimates of a million dollars per year being spent to incarcerate one kid in oh, our county system with like 70% recidivism rates. Terrible. And so, so what are we accomplishing? And when you, and, and the kids are, are actually made worse and they're traumatized and, you know, there's a, a big class action right now for all the sexual abuse. Yes. Kids have been, I mean, it's it's a mess. So, you know, we really need to step back and rethink the whole system. And there's been efforts to shut it down and reformulate it. And there's a, a whole new department of uh, youth development that's supposedly going to undertake that task, but it's very complicated because there's all kinds of state laws and rules and regulations right. that that are, will impede that from happening. So, I wish I had a great answer. Yeah, you know, I I appreciate it, Jacqueline. I mean, I think there's so much legacy there and uh, bureaucracy, unfortunately. Sean, do you see any? short-term gains, I mean, or reforms that can be small steps in the right direction? Definitely, and I think this project really highlights it. Um, investing in a safe, uh, nurturing, supportive school environment is not like a afterthought to dealing with the problems of our juvenile justice system. It's one of the key factors uh, they call it the school to prison pipeline for a reason. Mm -hmm. I was a public defender for 23 years doing serious violent cases. Mm -hmm. And it's all about childhood and education. And I think that the more we focus on creating school environments that are supportive and non-judgmental and effective, the better we will do solving the problems of juvenile crime. Well, well said. And of course, that means also teachers who, who carry those thoughts. So that's uh, probably another discussion. Let me shift the subject <laughs> for a moment. You've both been wonderful. And I, it's a, this has been a very um, enlightening conversation. And I'm glad to see such change with those 300 young people that you were able to work with in the program. I, I, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, I like to talk with women who've been successful to really understand what it takes uh, to to make it in life the way they have, and I call it leading and succeeding. Jacqueline, you're a stellar example in what you've done with the Every Child Foundation with uh, $23 million, $22, 23000000 million put back into goodwill is wonderful. Well, you've had a, a stellar career, and you were, as you said, urban planner and lawyer. What advice do you give to women if they want to be strong leaders? 
you need to find something that you're passionate about. If, if you're not passionate about the cause, no one's going to be following you to make you a leader. <laughs> That's a really good point. They, they follow the really, passion, don't they? It's not yeah. rational. They follow the yeah. passion. Mm-hmm. And also to, to stick to your guns when you have a principle or a, a, an idea about how you want to execute something and, and you really feel in your bones very strongly about it, you need to stand up for your, your principles and your ideas. And it, it's very easy to, you know, with groupthink to get swayed to chip away at some of your, your ideas and your, you know, with every child, when we, when I first started it, I wanted there to be equality among the members where everyone would have an equal vote an equal say and give an equal amount of money. And there's been suggestions over the years, well, why don't we cut the dues in half and, and have twice the number of members and have half memberships. And it would kind of dilute the concept because then we would, we would have, women who are half as vested as other women. And, you know, I've stuck to my guns on that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the organization has, has stood the test of time because we, you know, been firm about that and other. other I think aspects. it's a, a excellent point, Jacqueline. I find also when you have to make tough decisions in life, you need to know what you stand for. What are your core values? What are you trying to accomplish with your life? And mm-hmm. uh, stick to those, right? And use those as a filter when you're having to make tough decisions. Any other thoughts about mistakes or tough decisions, challenges people have to face? Well, I think you. You know, if you do make a mistake, you have to own up to it mm-hmm. and you need to work as a group and, and share your vulnerabilities with the people that you work with. Because if you want them, you want to work with people who are going to take ownership of, of, of the project as well. If it's just you leading the bunch and people just following you, people are going to get very disenfranchised. So you need to be able to to bear your soul and and let other people step in and 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 have opportunities to become leaders as well and have a have a pipeline of leadership and good advice very good advice i've been talking a lot lately about vulnerability and as a leader not assuming you have to always be the smartest person in the room right allowing Absolutely. others to step up right and admitting your errors just as you said well, and attribute attribute success to people who bring great ideas to the table give them credit Absolutely. And do it uh, verbally and visually. Well, you've both been terrific. Sean, do you want to give any one piece of advice in the short time we have left? I just want to say that one of the most unique things about every child and uh, Jacqueline is this all uh, female foundation. Um, Really, uh, I thought it was going to be super. I mean, it's a competitive grant. I thought it was going to be, you know, the Hunger Games, and it was just the opposite. <laughs> Jacqueline and her crew spent so much time listening to us and teaching us how to articulate our vision and our message. And I use the things I learned from her and her people all the time in other fundraising situations now, and I really appreciate 
Appreciate it. That's great. Well, Sean Kennedy from the uh, the uh, Center for Juvenile Law and Policy at Loyola Law School. Thank you very much. And uh, Jacqueline uh, Castor, it's been a, a, a real honor to meet you from the Every Child Foundation that you formed uh, 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 24 years ago. Congratulations to both of you. Listeners, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show. And listeners, thank you for listening to the show about how to lead and succeed and also what the difficult issues we have in our county here with crossover youth foster youth moving into the delinquency system and i hope you learned about solutions that exist out there and the hard work that it takes to make change happen you're listening to the dr renee frazier show why women this is renee frazier you can listen to this and other podcasts on our website FraserCommunications.com and on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week ahead.